Well, if you would open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John. We've been studying the Gospel for some time now, and we find ourselves this week in John chapter 6. We're going to look this morning at verses 22 through 40. And as you turn there, I'd just like to say that when you read the scriptures cover to cover, what you'll find sprinkled throughout is different ways that God speaks to different people. In the Bible, you have what many people call warning passages, and then you have assurance passages. And sometimes people like to pick which one they like the most. And the danger sometimes of the warning passages is that you can sometimes sow doubt in genuine believers. A person who walked into the service uh, confident that Christ is his Savior may actually walk out wondering if he's ever really believed in the first place when a warning passage is misapplied. They, They walk out doubting their salvation. On the other hand, with assurance passages, if they're abused, you can abuse Scripture in such a way that the unbeliever can walk in the church feeling like the heathen that he is, but he walk out feeling like everything's okay when nothing has really changed. Right? He is still the same uh, person that he was when he walked in here, and he has no basis for thinking that anything should be fine in his life. So the problem is, is that we can sometimes, though, allow pastors or even other people to diagnose us without wrestling with the issue ourselves. We don't actually think through what we're hearing when people say things to us. We just take their word for it, and we just take it as one of the two things. We either need the assurance passage or we need the um, warning passage. And my job is to preach the word to your heart, but not try to understand your heart. I don't understand all of your hearts in this room. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I, I believe that, and I believe many of you believe that too. So I can't understand your hearts. I don't know what's going on. God's word says that it's deceitfully uh, wicked. It's sick. And I don't understand it. And that speaks for me too. I, I say you guys have sick hearts, but I'm including myself in that. So we can't understand it. So it's just my job to, it's not my job to test the heart or your mind. That's God's job. God will do that. I'm just called to preach the word to you. And if I've done it faithfully, what will happen is you encounter the living God through it. It's not my words. It's his words. He will test you by his word through my feeble efforts. Paul says to the foolishness of preaching this comes about. So what you need to do now is to prepare your heart today and to ask yourself this morning if this passage speaks warning to you or if it speaks assurance to you. If you're not where you should be with God, this text may have discomforting news for you. But what I want you to hear loud and clear before I say anything else is that you don't have to only hear the bad news. The bad news only stays bad news if you refuse to believe what Jesus is speaking to you in his word. If you believe what he says in this passage, then this passage will turn into you not a passage of warning, but actually a passage of great assurance where you can trust in the promises that you find in Jesus. So are you ready? All right, let's read God's word this morning and give due attention to it. These are the words of God. John 6, 22 through 40 says this. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the Lord saw that Jesus was not there, or so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, excuse me, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you have that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, I pray that before I say anything else, that you would guard my mouth from any words that would come out that are not honoring to you. Lord, it's not a small thing to get up here and just profess to speak the words of God. And Lord, I don't take that role and that job lightly. And I pray, Father, that right now that you would humble my heart and humble all of our hearts to sit before your feet and hear you speak to us in your word. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want you to think about the people in this passage, the crowd specifically. Last week we looked at the disciples and how Jesus tested them. This week we're going to look at the crowd, and next week we'll look at the Jews. But just think about this crowd. Doesn't it look like this crowd is actually doing all of the things they should be doing? Like They pretty much look like they're doing the right thing. They're following Jesus because he's healing the, healing the sick. Right? It's a good thing. They see Jesus is healing. We're going to follow this guy. He, he's, he knows how to heal people. They sit down and they receive his bread and fish for a meal, so they're accepting his hospitality. Jesus has taken care of them. They proclaim him to be the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, uh, saying, you're the prophet. We saw this last week. You're the prophet. And Peter says later in the book of Acts that Jesus actually is a fulfillment of that prophecy, that Jesus is the prophet. So they're right. He is the prophet. They, they, they say that he was, or Jesus says that they were going to take him by force and make him king. We see later in the scriptures that Jesus is the king, right? Jesus truly is the king. That it, was, it just wasn't the right timing. So they recognize he's a king. They recognize he's a prophet. Further, after Jesus slipped away, uh, they keep seeking Jesus, it says. They're looking for Jesus. They're trying to find him. And when Jesus gives them pushback, when they finally find him, uh, and tell them that they're there for the wrong reasons, they're still insisting. They say, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They're insistent. Well, what do we do, Jesus? And Jesus says, believe. 
And then he says that he is the sign that they need. He's the bread of life that comes down from heaven. So in response, they even say, sir, give us this bread always. They're telling Jesus, give us this bread always. Then Jesus still says in verse 36, but you have seen me and you do not believe. And church, this is why I think that seeker-sensitive services will never work. You know what I mean by seeker-sensitive services where people are kind of catering to what the crowds want. Where we say, well, we're going we're gonna to worship and uh, serve God in such a way that it draws people in. And at best, what you end up getting is a large crowd of seekers who are never going to be believers. They are there for the wrong reasons. Notice in verse 24. What does verse 24 say? Verse 24 says, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they, uh, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They're looking for Jesus. They're Jesus seekers. Verse 26 says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. But is Jesus, is Jesus is he sensitive to their seeking? Is he seeker-sensitive? Does he accommodate their unbelief by watering down his message? Is that what Jesus does? Does he make his truth more palatable to the seeker who might be offended at this high-octane truth-teller? No. Jesus plainly told these people that, yes, I see you're seeking. I see you're here. I see you're going through the motions. But guess what? You do not believe. You do not believe. Now, I want you to look at this passage with me from two angles as we try to, uh, to unscramble some of the things that are here that might be uh, confusing to us. The, the discomforting news is what I'm going to talk about and the comforting news. There's, there's two angles. So if you're taking notes, number one, there's going to be the, the discomforting news, which is going to be a warning of false belief. And number two, there actually is going to be comforting news, and this is an assurance of true belief. So we have the good news and the bad news, we might say. So number one. The discomforting news, or we might say the warning of false belief. And this is discomforting news because what you see here is a large crowd who professes to want Jesus and looks to be going through all the right motions to follow him. But Jesus tells them that they're there for the wrong reasons. Everything you're doing is actually false. It looks like you're doing the right thing, but you're not. The central problem with this crowd is that they're looking for salvation, not a savior. Catch the distinction. They're looking for salvation, not a savior. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do? And that shows that they have not yet grasped that salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift, not something to be worked for. Right? They are there for salvation in, the, in terms of a pattern. How can I work this out? What can I do to be doing the works of God to get my salvation that I want? In other words, they believe that they still have what it takes to please God. They think I can do it. Jesus, just show me how. Show me how to be saved. They want to perform the works of God and earn his salvation. But Jesus makes it very clear that the work of God is much less about merit. It's not about performance. It's not about earning something. It's about trust and reliance on someone else. In many ways, it's kind of passive. It's not something that you're doing. It's something that you're receiving. It's something that you're accepting. We use this terminology, don't we? Accepting Jesus for who he is, right? And that is the gift. It's the gift given to you that you receive. The work of God, Jesus says, is to believe on him who he sent. Further, in verse 33, uh, you see that the bread that comes down from heaven is he who comes to give life to the world. Now think about that. The work of God, the bread of life, is a he. It's a person. 
It's a person uh, giving you life. He is the giver of eternal life. So to come to Jesus, you must not think that there's some work you must do to be saved. Right? That's not what it means to come to Jesus for salvation. You must simply believe on Jesus for your life, and this offer is the gift of salvation, not the playbook. Right? There's a big difference between the two. You come to Jesus, and Jesus is your salvation. He isn't just the teacher of how you can be saved. That is a huge difference. In other words, it's a heart issue. It's not so much about your actions and your, what you're doing. Yes, Jesus does care about that. But when it comes to how you are being saved, being justified, being accepted by God, it is a heart issue. Now, every single person in this crowd here today, we might call this a crowd just to kind of make a connection to the text here. Every single person in this crowd here would say, I came here seeking Jesus. Didn't you? If I asked you, you would say, yeah, I came here to seek Jesus. I came here to meet him, uh, to be going and doing the works of God. I, I came here to be doing what Jesus wants to be doing. But so did the unbelieving crowd. Right? That's why they came here. They were seeking Jesus. So let me ask you, church, what makes you different from them? What distinguishes you as a crowd that came here to seek Jesus from them? Right? You can kind of hear the warning, can't you? The warning of false belief. You see... That is the discomforting news when you start to wrestle with that. The fact that this category even exists is a little bit scary, isn't it? That, that you can go through the motions, that you can be seeking and doing seemingly all the right things, but there might still be a sickness inside, something off. There are people who seek Jesus all their life, but every time they actually encounter him at church or maybe on the lips of an evangelist or maybe just a family member sharing the word of God with them, they come in word and deed only. Not with their heart. There's a difference. They close their heart off to a God that should have free reign there. And that's what we have to be careful with. They show up to Sunday school. They sing the songs. They say the words. They even ask, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? How can I serve? Right? You've heard these people. They come into the church and they look like a heathen. And they come in and say, what can I do? Right? That, that may be the wrong question. Right? They may, may need to have some heart things settled out before they should actually be moving forward. They may need to ask the question if they're there for the right reasons. Are they there to be doing the works of God or are they there to celebrate the work of God that's already been done in their hearts? Right. So when they're saying, sign me up, you might want to say, hold on a second. Why? Why do you want to be signed up? Why do you want to do this? Are you right with God or did you just come in here to go through the motions? But when Jesus knocks on the heart of their door or the door of their heart... When Jesus comes to that person that is going through those motions and does that, those kind of things, and says, you came here for the wrong reasons today, what happens with that kind of person? It's a cold silence. It's nothing. It doesn't go anywhere. It stops, and they won't go there. And you've met these kind of people, haven't you? And maybe there's even some here in the pews today, and this is the, the real genuine warning to you. If you're unwilling to go there for allow, allowing Jesus to speak into your heart and saying, are you here for the right reasons today? then you might be part of the unbelieving crowd. That's what false belief actually looks like. Going through all of it to where it looks right, that's why it's called false belief. It looks like real belief, but it's false belief because when you actually get down to the nitty-gritty, when you should be looking Jesus in the face and he asks you a really hard question, you give him the real answer and you don't give him the door. That's false belief. The person sitting next to you has no idea, right? They're sitting next to you and they have no idea that all of this is going on. Why? Because Jeremiah is right. The heart is deceitfully wicked. No one can understand it. No human being can get it. They might miss it for years and years. Who knows who will understand it? I'll tell you. God knows. God knows your heart. 
It might be a mystery to us. We might sit to the next person and say, I don't know what's going on in their head. Jesus does. God knows what is going on in your heart. And he is the one, if you are that false believer, that you've locked out. And he is the only one that you should be really letting in in that full reign kind of way. Because he's the only one that can sort out all that wickedness, all that sickness that our heart actually is. Who can understand it? God can understand it, and he actually can sort it all out and reorder and bring redemption to it. That is the one that we need to let in more than anything. And church, that, my friends, is what you call a good old warning passage. When you look at the scriptures and you see this is a thing, it's, it's discomforting. It's meant to be that way if you're not where you should be with God. But before we move on to the comforting news, I just want to be very, very clear about the war- what the warning actually is. It's not just to kind of make you feel uncomfortable. It's this. It's not that there will just be temporal missed opportunities. It's not that you could have lived a cleaner life even. The warning is of eternal significance. This lasts forever if you don't get it right. If you falsely believe, you will not have eternal life. Can't be any clearer than that. If you do not believe and if you falsely believe, you will not have eternal life. You will not be raised up on the last day and you can be assured that Jesus will cast you out. It's the very opposite of all those things that Jesus promises of the believing in this passage. Because you're either one of the two. You're not both. You're either true or Or you're false. So, now that you've been warned, would you like to hear some good news? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I would too. I would too. Number two, comforting news. We really can have assurance of true belief. The good news is that false belief isn't the only category of Jesus seekers. There's people that seek Jesus for the right reasons. And many in this room today, I would hope that all in this room today, came here seeking Jesus and you're not like the crowds. You're actually not. It can feel like it at some times, but you're not. Because when you said, we lift our hearts up to the Lord in the Sursum Corda, you actually meant it. right? Your hearts were connected to your words and what you were saying. When Jesus approaches the door of your heart, he finds it's already open. You said already in the prayer this morning, you, you, you agreed with me. Yes, we really do want to open our hearts today, Lord. We want you to have full reign. We want you to work. And for this category of people, I want to give you some very comforting news. You can have real assurance in your salvation. If you take an honest look at your heart and find that it's needy and in search for a savior and not just kind of a a get back on track plan, because that's many times what people come to church for, isn't it? It's not just a a get back on track plan. It's actual trust and reliance on a savior. Then you can be assured that your life is in good hands, the best hands, the strongest hands, the most capable hands to actually order your life how it should be. So to truly believe goes back to what we've talked about with the new birth. I know many of you haven't been here through the whole series, but we talked about in John chapter 3 what it means to truly believe is to be born again. You've heard about this before. To be a born-again believer. That's actually just a true believer. right? That's the only kind of real believer that there is, is there's a born-again believer. And Jesus says in verse 37 that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. I'm going to wrap this together. Notice the order here. It doesn't say, whoever might come to me, the Father will give to me. Right? You've got to get the order right. It says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. So something has to happen before anyone comes to Jesus truly. And that is, the Father must give that person to Christ. Right? The Father must give that person to Christ. And that giving of the person to Christ is being born again. That's the regeneration, the coming alive, coming anew to spiritual realities. To truly believe is the work of God. 
And that's what this text says, doesn't it? In verse 29, Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe. It's God's work. It's not man's work. We can't birth ourselves, can we? We've talked about this before. Only God can do this. God causes us to believe, and that is his work and our gift. It's the gift of salvation, not the work of salvation. So in one sense, to truly believe is a mystery, right? We've talked about this before. It's, it's kind of mysterious because John says in John 3, the wind blows where it wishes. No one knows where it comes from. No one where, knows where it goes. And so it is with the Spirit. So it is when you're born again. And you say, wow, I don't even know how that happened. God showed up. I don't know where he came from. I don't know where he's going next. But here I am, and I'm worshiping Jesus. That's, that's the mystery, the gospel mystery of salvation. And God is completely sovereign in that act. And he gives to the Son whomever he wills. Right? He gives those people to the Son. That's what that category is. But there's another sense where there's a real responsibility. I don't want to overemphasize one to underemphasize the other. So there's God's sovereign, but there's another sense in which we have a real responsibility to believe. It's mankind's response to God, to his works, to believe. To truly believe in this context means you come with a truly needy posture to receive the gift that is offered, and you receive it for what it is. Right? So we, we actually recognize that we are in need. We don't have everything together. We receive it. We're not doing anything. You just, you just take it. You accept a gift. You don't work for a gift of God. And you receive it as it is. Jesus as Savior. Not Jesus as whatever you want him to be. Jesus as your next meal, like the people in the text. Right? That's what Jesus was to them. Jesus will give me what I want. I'm sick and I have cancer. I'm going to go to church. Right? I mean, people do that. People go to church for many of the wrong reasons. And it doesn't mean that they'll never get right when they're there. But Jesus wants to confront them in these kind of uh, warning passages to say, wait, wait, why are you here? Because I think you came here for your fill of the loaves, not for me. You're not here for the right reasons. So it means to come hungry and receive the bread that satisfies. It does not mean to come hungry for bread and ask for the recipe for the bread. Right? There's a difference. You, you say, I want the bread. I'm hungry. Give me the bread now. And the problem with this crowd is that they were missing the point. They thought when Jesus was talking about the bread that he was talking about the law. Many scholars and commentators say that they actually misread Jesus' words. He's kind of speaking cryptically. And he does this a lot, doesn't he? Jesus talks in kind of weird ways. And they thought, many commentators think that he was talking about the law because there's some Old Testament passages that talk about eating the law. Right? That you eat and you feast on the law of God. So they wanted a recipe for a life abundant. So they're saying, yeah, Jesus, you're a great teacher. You're a great rabbi. Show us how to live. Show us how to be saved. So they wanted Jesus as great teacher of the law, not the fulfillment of the law. Big difference. Big difference between receiving a way of living and just receiving life. Right? That's what they were missing. And when they saw Jesus, they saw a chef with a recipe, not an already cooked meal to feast upon. And Jesus is saying, I'm the bread, guys. I am the bread of life. I'm God incarnate. I'm here. Feast on me. And they said, we just want to know how to be saved. Show me what I need to do. And Jesus says, what you do is you believe. I'm here. I'm here. You do not believe. You see me, and yet you do not believe. So to be a Christian, to distinguish the false belief, to be a Christian is one who truly believes and recognizes that you are in need of a Savior. And a Savior, remind you, or just to remind you, is someone that has done the work for you already. The, the, the work is done. You need the work of God to be a Christian. To be a moralist or a false or a deceptive believer, you just need a pattern of salvation so you can do the work. You want the work of man. You don't want the work of God. You want the work of man. You want God to give you a pattern and you want to do it. Right. So 
There's real comfort, though, extended to those who truly believe in this passage. I just wanted to be clear what true belief is before we move on to the comfort that we find in true belief. And the true comfort is this. We find it in verses like verse 27. It shows that if you truly believe, you're going to have life eternal. Eternal life. Bread that always satisfies. That means that you're going to live forever in the presence of Jesus. You're never going to die spiritually. You'll be raised up with him. Verse 35 says you will never hunger or thirst spiritually. And that starts now. You're going to have a spiritual uh, fountain in you that feeds you, that quenches your thirst, that gives you all that you need to get through life. Why? Because Jesus is your life. right? It's not. Remember we talked about this before too. It's not digging up a new well, starting from scratch, trying to figure out the way of salvation. No, it's just receiving salvation. It's receiving life because Jesus is that never-ending, ongoing feast of righteousness. He's always there for you. Verse 37, Jesus says he will never cast you, cast you out. Think about the implications of that. Other people might reject you if you cross them. Right? If, you, if you ever sin against them, they say, it's over, we're done, I'm going to cast you out. Jesus says, I'm never going to do that to you. I would never do that to you. Because who the Father gives to me, I will never cast out. This is a gift that the Father has given me, and you are mine. Now think about the implications for that with your salvation. Think about the assurance that you can have that if you truly believe and you know your heart, you look down in your heart of hearts and you realize who you really are, that brings really great hope. And consider more specifically what our comfort is in, just to kind of hone it in a little bit. It's not just that we'll get great benefits. It is that, right? We're happy about eternal life. We're happy about being part of the resurrection and being raised up on the last day, as it says in verse 39, 40. It, but it's also more specifically, more specifically that our relationship with God is secure. It's safe. True belief takes comfort in the sovereignty of God. That you can rest in the goodness of God that he is not going to cast you out. It might seem, if you look at this passage, like the unbelief of the crowd was a proof that the work of God had failed. Right? They don't believe, so God must have done something wrong. But if the work of God is that they believe, and if Jesus says they don't believe, then, then doesn't that show that God's failed and that his plan was slaughtered? No, actually doesn't. It actually doesn't. Why? Because they never truly believed. But Jesus isn't losing anything in that scenario. No, verse 37 actually shows the opposite. It says that all that the Father has given to me will come to him. And those people hadn't come to him fully. They'd come to them in word and deed only without their hearts. They closed the door. And Jesus says, actually, this is working according to plan. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And these people are showing themselves to be false believers. And in verse 39, he says that he will lose none of that that the Father has given him. He's, he will lose none of that that the Father has given to him. So church, think about this. We believe in a God who does not fail. That's the implication. God doesn't fail. His plan of salvation works out perfectly. He's never frustrated. Why? Because his plan of salvation rests on him, not on us. And that's where so many Christians miss it. They think that their salvation depends upon them. They carry literally the weight of their life, their world, feeling like they have to uphold their salvation and keep their salvation. But that's not where your assurance of salvation should rest. It should rest in Jesus Christ alone and his promise being true that he will never lose anything that he has. He will never cast you out. All that the Father has given to him, he will not cast out. Again, it's the work of God, not the work of man that saves us. It's not our work, it's God's work. And to say it in a more comforting way, we have assurance of salvation not because of our grip on God, but because of his grip of grace on us. 
That's a big difference. That's a big difference. When, you, when your assurance rests on how close you can stay to God and how, how strong you can hold on to him, you'll get scared. You'll get scared real quick. And some of you have, haven't you? You've had fears at times where you wonder, did I cross the line? Have I lost my grip on God? Have I, have I finally went so far that I've, I've went too far and he's just going to cast me out? Right? Have you ever wondered that? Have you crossed the line to where now God's going to lose me? Where, where I'm no longer part of his people? The church, the reality is, is if you could lose your salvation, you would. That's, that, that's the fact of the matter. If you could lose your salvation, you would. People argue about this question all the time. Uh, can you lose your salvation or not? The, the, the answer is no. If you truly believe, you will never be cast out. You will not lose your salvation. Why? Because God doesn't lose things. He doesn't lose things. And when you are given to Jesus as a gift, Jesus cherishes that. When the Father gives you as a gift to his Son, you are precious in his sight. And he is not going to lose that. He is going to have a strong grip of grace on your life, and you will never be cast out. And that is hope for you. That is real assurance that so many people won't give to you. Why? Because they're always trying to scare literally the hell out of you, right? They want to give you only warning passages and make you scared to death where you walk out of here where you're scared to even do anything. But church, I want to give you some comfort today. I want to give you some comfort that you can trust in Jesus, that his plan is actually working out, and that nothing that's been given to him, he will lose, right? Our salvation is secure not because we're such good Christians. It's not. Our salvation is secure because Christ doesn't lose things, because he is holding on to us with his grip of grace. So we rest on his goodness, not our works for our salvation, and that rest and trust truly is faith. That's what it means to believe, to let God be God, and you be man. Yes, you're trying to model yourself after being like God. But at the end of the day, your salvation is a work of God, not a work of man. We don't ask like the crowd did, what must we be doing? Right? What must we do to be doing the works of God, to be saved? Jesus says, simply believe. Right? That's what you need to do. You don't need to do anything. You just need to trust that the work of God is the work of God. And you need to rest in that. That's what it means to come to Jesus with true belief. So the conclusion is this. I'm going to make a statement and then kind of sort it out. Jesus for all, not all for Jesus. Let me unpack that. Jesus for all, not all for Jesus. So now that I've shown these two dimensions of this passage, the warning belief or the warning of false belief and the assurance of true belief, you're probably wondering, where does that leave me? Which one of these am, am I? If it's God's work that he gives only some to Jesus, then what if I'm not actually given to Jesus? Right? If you thought, are you thinking about that kind of thing? What if I'm not given to Jesus? What if I'm part of the false believers? What if I will uh, be cast out because I actually wasn't a true believer? Well, in light of that question, let me close by emphasizing not just the exclusivity of salvation, but the universality of it also. Right? Not just that there's a small little people, a group of people that are going to be saved, but I, I want you to see the big picture, the universality. I mean, let me hear, or let please hear me clearly. I'm not saying that I'm a universalist. That's, that's scary language. I'm not saying universalism is true, but hear this. Jesus clearly te- teaches here that not everyone will come to him. That's why we can say we're not universalists. But notice the universality of the scope of redemption. It's given for the life of who? What's it say in verse 33? For the life of the world. That's pretty big language, isn't it? For the life of the world. So Jesus tells the unbelieving crowd that he will give himself to them in verse 27. Jesus tells these people that aren't believing, I'm going to give myself to you. He says, I will give this bread of life to you. And verse 32 says that that the Father gives Jesus the true bread from heaven to them. And remember, this is a group of people that don't believe. So Jesus for all. 
Right? That's what I want you to hear. Jesus for all. So the Father gives the Son to all the world because he loves the world. That's Jesus for all. But the Father does not give all the world to the Son. All for Jesus. Yeah, yeah. All for Jesus. No, Jesus for all, not all for Jesus. Sorry. So only those that the Father gives to the Son will come to him. But here's the good news. Verse 40 says this. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, catch that, the universality of it, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes, that's important too, and believes in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So church, the invitation is genuinely here for every single person in this room. Right? It's, he, this, this invitation is for all of you. Don't ask that question. Don't ask yourself if you are one of those that is given, your, that is given to the Son. Right? That might be the question that's kind of rolling around in your mind. You don't have to ask that question if you are one of those people that are given to the Son. All you have to do is answer the question to the test. Right? We've talked about these three sermons that we're going to have through John chapter 6. The test of the disciples, the test of the crowd, and the test of the Jews. We'll see next week. The test of the crowd is, do you believe Jesus? That's the only thing that you have to answer. You don't answer if, if you are called. You don't answer if you're really seeking. You don't, you don't have to answer any of those questions. You say, do I believe the person who's in front of me that is confronting my heart, knocking at my heart right now? Do you believe that man? Will you let him into your heart? So Christ is presented to you as Savior Church. He is your Savior. True bread that comes down from heaven, the life of the world. Do you truly believe in him for your life? That is the question. If you do, then you pass the tests. And you may be assured God's grip of grace that you feel when you, when you think about that question and, and you know, I do believe that that grip of grace isn't going to let you go. There's real hope for you. There's real assurance for you that God's going to take you uh, and carry you to the last day. There's so many scriptures about this. I, I'm not going to go down the list, but just think about how God's grip is tight on you. And how can you trust that? Because God's word's true. His word is true. It never fails. And more specifically, it's true in Isaiah, the prophet, Isaiah 59, 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Think about that. God's grip of grace, his hand is not shortened. It's not weak. God has a strong hand that can save you. And also because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. That's why you hear that sometimes in the assurance of pardon. The assurance of pardon, the assurance of your salvation is that when you believe that, church, you will be saved. And you can take real comfort in that. And if you hear that and you think, I don't know about that, then you might be in the other category. And this might be a real passage of warning to you to say, I think you might be here for the wrong reasons. If you walk out that door and say, I don't really agree with that. I'm not saying my message is infallible, but, but the word of God here is that if you reject Jesus as he's presented in his word and have doubts about him and come for the wrong reasons, this is a real warning for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are before you this morning. And as we look at them, we are many times confused. We are deceived even by our own hearts. Your word is true that they are wicked and sick. And we recognize that. That's why we confessed that to you earlier, Lord, in the confession of sin. But, Lord, we, we lift up our hearts to you, asking that you would sort these things out. Lord, show us our hearts for what they truly are. I pray that every member in this room, as they sit in the pews and maybe wrestle with this message, that they would have clarity about which one of those should be the case for them. Should they be comforted by this, or should they have real warning in their heart to take away from this, wondering if they truly are a believer or not? But those that are... Truly trusting you, Lord, I pray that you would give them great, great comfort. 
I pray that there would be no doubt in their mind that they would have a 